Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 78. God Save the King. Unless it's Catholic. Last time out, we began our catch-up of events in England. We looked at the situation which followed the English Civil War and the restoration of Charles II. We moved things through the 1660s and into the 1670s, looking at the emergence of two new political parties in England, the Tories and the Whigs. We also looked at the situation on the continent, the growing power of France, and what this meant for Anglo-Dutch relations. Today, we'll begin by looking in a bit more detail about where this took things. Parliament favoured a close relationship with the Dutch. The Whig faction contained a Puritan element, and had long been close with the Dutch. The Tories were staunchly Anglican, and so had no such Calvinist bonds with Holland, but they did hate Catholics. The only group which favoured the Catholics was the royal faction in Whitehall, which was very quickly separating itself from the Cavaliers of Parliament. Charles kept leaning towards France, and he had managed to prevent England becoming sucked into a Protestant league with Holland and Sweden, the two other Protestant powers in Europe. But in 1674, it was finally realised that England could not submit herself to France. Such a thing would hand France control of the continent. I mentioned last time that it would take until the Glorious Revolution for the French to be fully shaken off, but they did not have things all their own way. In 1674, Charles turned from his pro-Catholic faction in Whitehall and formed an alliance with the leader of the Cavalier Parliament, Thomas Osborne, the Earl of Danby. Danby is considered by many to be the real founder of the Tory party. He was a typical Tory and a brilliant statesman. He was, like Clarendon before him, another indication of the growing power of Parliament compared to the monarch. He was a minister of the king, but his power was based entirely on his position in the House of Commons. He marks a step on the path towards the creation of the post of Prime Minister. Danby opposed France, and he saw a strong relationship with the Dutch as a perfect solution. The most successful part of this was arranging a marriage between Mary, the daughter of Charles's brother James, and her cousin, William of Orange. This was significant because Mary was second in line to the throne. Danby actually favoured open war with the French, but he was unable to actually start it since both Charles and the Whigs opposed it. Charles because he didn't want to fight the French, and the Whigs because they didn't like the idea of Danby and the Tories controlling an army. They weren't particularly keen on the monarchical ideas that William held either. Domestically, the main issue was the fact that the Cavalier Parliament had been sitting since 1661. It didn't really represent the people anymore. It was dominated by Tories, which is exactly why Danby didn't want to call an election. He feared the rise of the Whigs. Charles also feared the Whigs, 
and worried that this new parliament would be even more hostile to both himself and to Roman Catholics. It would have been wise for Danby to relax the persecution of the Puritans, rather than to keep Parliament in session. Instead, Titus Oates's Popish Plot happened. The Popish Plot was a conspiracy theory that the Catholic Church planned to assassinate Charles II using the Jesuits. It was the brainchild of Titus Oates, and was also nonsense. It would soon be revealed as nonsense. The Whigs knew it was nonsense, but rather than acting rationally, they decided to take advantage of the situation and whip up public anger. An election was finally held, and the Whigs used their new position of power to persecute the Tories, who regained power and turned back to persecuting Protestant dissenters. Such was their fury against the Whigs that they abandoned their persecution of Catholics. While England was distracted, events on the continent worsened. Charles needed French gold. James, his brother and the heir to the throne, was openly Catholic and pro-France. Those ministers who wanted a powerful position in the next regime attached themselves to James and were also pro-French. Nothing was done when Louis XIV moved French armies across the continent towards the Rhine and into the Netherlands. In 1685, Charles died, and James II took the throne. James called a new parliament, which was strongly Tory. The idea was that the Tory parliament and the royal court could together crush the Whigs permanently through unity. There was, however, one major issue. James believed that his Catholicism was no real issue. He had seen the Tories turn against the Whigs, and thought this would give him a huge degree of freedom. He was mistaken. James II came to the throne in February 1685. In June 1685, rebellion broke out in the West Country. This was the Monmouth Rebellion. In Somerset, a rebellion of lower-class Puritans broke out. It was very different from the Whig Party, and should be considered more in line with the old Roundheads, but without the leadership that had allowed the Roundheads to win the Civil War. It soon collapsed. But what took most by surprise was James's brutal reprisals. The Tories were horrified. After alienating his allies, James then decided that what he really needed to do was alienate them even more. The Tories hated standing armies because of Cromwell, so James's reaction to the rebellion was to set up a standing army. He then decided to staff this army with Catholics. There weren't enough Catholics, so for soldiers he brought in the Irish, and he tried appointing Whigs as officers even though most wanted nothing to do with this. The Whigs already didn't like James, and now he had seriously annoyed the Tories. At least James had secured his power base with the English Roman Catholics and his alliance with France. Except, no. Most Roman Catholics in England had no desire for Catholic domination. 
the kind of which James seemed to be pushing upon the country. They just wanted religious toleration. In practice, many of the Catholic gentry were perfectly able to practice their faith. This was also felt by Pope Innocent XI, a much more forward-thinking man than previous popes, such as the ones who had excommunicated Elizabeth. He just wanted religious toleration, and was more concerned about Louis XIV. Basically, everybody just wanted James to shut up, yet he continued to push Catholics into his standing army, onto the Privy Council, and onto the Magistrates' bench. This was combined with an influx of French Huguenots, fleeing Catholic persecution in France. They found James's actions extremely troubling. James realised how much he had annoyed the Tories, and so he sought favour from the Whigs. He offered them a declaration of indulgence which would end Puritan persecution, something which was technically illegal. The Anglican Church promised to work with the Nonconformists once the Parliament was called and pass a statute of religious toleration. Now, the Tories and Whigs had been bitter foes for a good 20 years by this point, so this offer was very significant, as was the Whig decision to side with the Tories against the King. They would rather secure security from Parliament than royal decrees, especially a royal decree by a Catholic despot. Within two years, James had managed to alienate pretty much everybody. It was the hope of all that James would soon die. Then the throne could pass to his daughter, Mary. The situation changed dramatically in 1688 when James had a son, a new Catholic heir to the throne. This was too much for the Tories. A plea was made by a number of Whig and Tory leaders, all led by Danby himself, to William, Prince of Orange, to take the throne. William had taken the lead in Europe on stopping France, and getting England on his side would allow him to make real headway. It was therefore logical that Louis XIV would protect James to prevent this situation. Now, because James happens to be the stupidest monarch of all time, he chose at this moment to publicly repudiate French protection. By this point, invasion was inevitable. William landed a strong continental force in Torbay and called for a free parliament. The royal force almost immediately fell apart to inviting between the various nationalities and faith, and James was abandoned by his generals. Civil risings took place across the country led by both Whigs and Tories. Perhaps James could have organised resistance, but he then committed the ultimate crime. He fled England to take refuge with his wife and son in France. This was the Glorious Revolution. I'll get more into the Glorious Revolution itself in our next episode since it is so important, but right now I want to give you a quote to illustrate the revolution's position in classical English thought. It's from History of England by George Macaulay Trevelyan. Quote, For many generations to come, 
the revolution of 1688-89 was spoken of by our ancestors as the Glorious Revolution. Its glory did not consist in any deeds of arms, in any single acts of heroism on the part of Englishmen, nor in the fact that a whole nation proved itself stronger than one very foolish king. There was indeed a certain ignominy in the fact that a foreign fleet and army, however friendly and however welcome, had been required to enable Englishmen to recover the liberties they had modelled away in their frantic faction feuds. The true glory of the British Revolution lay in the fact that it was bloodless, that there was no civil war, no massacre, no prescription, and above all, that a settlement by consent was reached of the religious and political differences that had so long and so fiercely divided men and parties. The settlement of 1689 stood the test of time. It led not only to a new and wider liberty than had ever before been known in Britain, but to a renewed vigour and efficiency in the body politic and in the government of the empire. The long and enervating rivalry of Crown and Parliament gave place to cooperation between the two powers, with Parliament as the leading partner. From the external weakness that had characterised England in the 17th century, the country rose through the successive eras of Marlborough, Walpole and Chatham to the acknowledged leadership of the world in arms, colonies and commerce, in political and religious freedom and intellectual vigour. The men of 1689 were not heroes, few of them were even honest men, but they were very clever men, and taught by bitter experience, they behaved at this supreme crisis as very clever men do not always behave, with sense and moderation. It was the gravity of the national danger in the first months of 1689, with France in arms against us, Scotland divided and Ireland lost, that induced Whigs and Tories in the Convention Parliament to make that most famous compromise between their conflicting principles and factions, which we shall call the Revolution Settlement. It remained the solid foundation of English institutions in church and state, almost without change, until the era of the Reform Bill. End quote. That's where we'll close things for the moment. Next time we'll get into the Glorious Revolution Settlement, which will set out the British position with the Americans during the 18th century. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can find us online, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and sign up for membership. You can also find us on social media, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and at historyjamie on Twitter. My email address is thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com if you want to send me a message. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.